Good morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. If you're using the Bible and the seat in front of you, it will be on page 251. 251. We are back in the book of Kings this morning. Uh, there really shouldn't be a first and second Kings because originally it was one book, Kings. Seeing it as one book helps us to better follow the story. The structure of the book is divided into five main thrusts, resembling the structure of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. I won't touch on every movement of Israel's history and kings, but I want to note the first and last movements for context. The first begins with Solomon's rule and reign as the promised king of Israel and the establishment of God's temple. This is where we have been and where we will be today. The last movement ends with the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel's exile into Babylon. And that's just a brief macro level overview. In terms of a micro level overview, get down inside the forest view. The tribes of Israel has been unified into a nation under David's reign. Israel has received her king. But David is only a man and men die. In his old age and his forgetfulness, he is leaving his throne vacant. And it's not just the good guys that want the throne, it's the villain too. But the plan of man cannot overthrow the plan of God, and Solomon, David's son, is installed as king. Solomon is charged by David to be obedient to God's law if he is to be a successful king. And for the most part, it seems like he's doing just that until we get to chapter 3. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you'd be with us this morning, that your word would not return to you void, that it would accomplish your purposes We pray that you would mature us today, that you would make us more like Christ. Help us by your Spirit to walk in wisdom, to honor you in our pursuit of wisdom. May we be rooted and grounded in your word. We praise you, Father, for your goodness to us. I pray that your voice would be heard over mine this morning. Be glorified today. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Have you ever pursued something for a long time only to discover that what you were pursuing wasn't what you thought? For many people, it's this way with wisdom. People pursue wisdom on their own terms, in their own way, to get to what they think is the end goal, only to find out They should have never made the pursuit in the first place. This is because we've bought the lie that true wisdom is found in ourselves. 
Our culture is the first to tell you this. They love to be first in line to hear your concerns and point you in the right direction. Wisdom, they say, is always found within the deepest part of your heart. You decide what your true authentic self is. Everyone else is wrong. You decide what is ultimately right or wrong. You decide the best course of action for any given situation. But what the culture doesn't tell you is that when you give up pursuing wisdom from a greater authority than yourself, namely the God of the Scripture, you become your own God. You become the final arbiter of your life. And when men become their own lowercase g gods, the outcome is never positive. If this is all true for us common folk, how much more so for the king of a nation? Solomon had an opportunity unlike anyone ever had. After fulfilling a divine promise that Yahweh's king would sit on his throne, Yahweh appears to Solomon in a dream, and he asks Solomon, what do you want? This is the central question of chapters 3 through 4. The right answer can spell blessing for the kingdom, a wrong answer, disaster. This is Solomon's golden opportunity to get exactly what he wishes for. Will he pursue divine wisdom based on divine terms, or will he pursue his own wisdom based on man's terms? And really, for all of us, it is our question, too, and the point of the section. Will we walk in God's wisdom or our own? I've broken today's sermon up into three sections. You'll see it on your handout. The first section that we'll cover, the king's private request for wisdom. Let's read the first 15 verses of chapter 3. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Gibeon, the Lord, appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness. You have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge, your people to discern between good and evil, 
For who is able to judge this great people of yours? It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that There has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will be not, so there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Then Solomon awoke. And behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Solomon is king. He's not king by self-exaltation or a sinister coup d'etat, but by the faithful promise of Yahweh. After a stressful first week of being on high alert from his enemies, after a stressful first week in office, Solomon doesn't fill his schedule with executive orders and reversing the work of previous administrations, but with an alliance and marriage. Solomon makes an alliance with Egypt and marries Pharaoh's daughter. Though Solomon will choose right when it comes to wisdom. Several Old Testament scholars argue that these decisions were a failure of wisdom, a blunder, if you will, by Solomon. It is the first warning sign that not all will be right. Solomon is in violation of Deuteronomy 17, where God gave instruction to the future king of Israel who was not to make the people turn back to Egypt. Egypt, says one, was the antithesis of everything Israelite, a place of brutality, exploitation, bondage, the demeaning of the human spirit, the suppression of covenantal relations. But the narrator is careful to add, Solomon loved the Lord and walked in the statutes of David, his father. Maybe it's not so bad after all. But then we are introduced into another pothole in the road and we are forced to drive over it and we sense the impact. Solomon worships at the high place. You see it there in verse 4. It begins with accept. Solomon loved the Lord except he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. The alarm is sounding because God commanded his people to destroy these high places of pagan idolatry. Deuteronomy 12, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. What were these high places? These were open-air sanctuaries of idol worship constructed by those who were not God's people. 
God told Israel he did not want to be worshipped there and in that way. And if Genesis through Kings has taught us anything this far, it's that God cares about how he is approached in worship. The term high place is not viewed in a positive sense in the Old Testament, especially the remainder of Kings. Even more striking in verse 15, he leaves the high place to return to Jerusalem. And standing before the ark of the Lord's covenant, he sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Why would he need to leave the high place to return to the city of David to worship Yahweh? Here are some things Solomon does, but the narrator doesn't explicitly tell you that it was wrong in the eyes of the Lord. But this is how biblical narratives normally work. The narrator often shows you what's happening instead of explicitly telling you what's happening. Nevertheless, whether Solomon is in the right or in the wrong, God appears to him in a dream. Not necessarily because Solomon's obedience has warranted it, but because God is merciful and drawing near to sinners is what he does. This question to Solomon, or more of a statement actually, this is what God says, ask what you wish me to give to you. In other words, Solomon, tell me what you want and you can have it. Solomon has one chance, one opportunity to choose right. Will he heed his dad's advice we saw in chapter 2 about walking in the commands of God? If the alliance with Egypt and worshiping at the high place put a bad taste in your mouth, his request here restores our hope in the main character. What does he ask for? A discerning heart to discern between good and evil, verse 9. And he roots his request in the faithfulness of God, verse 6. God, you did this for my father David. Do it for me. Solomon's request to discern between good and evil reminds us of something. We've seen this language before, haven't we? It takes us back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The contrast between the first man and Solomon couldn't be more obvious. He stands as a new Adam who obeys God's command and chooses right. In the garden, Adam clutches to his own inferior, finite wisdom. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to pursue wisdom in his own way, in a way which pleased Adam. And God exiled him from the garden. Solomon confesses that he is not like God. And he asks for the wisdom that is from above. He requests that he would be a man who follows God's law, and God blesses him. Even Eve looked inward to her own wisdom. She decided that taking the fruit and eating it was best. And God exiled her from the garden. Eve saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes. Solomon refuses to do what is right in his own eyes. He asks to receive the knowledge of good and evil in the way God intends, 
not man. And as a result, he's not exiled. But to the contrary, Israel as a nation flourishes just like Eden flourished before the fall. And you'll begin to see in the next chapter the kingdom of Israel is becoming a lot like pre-fall Eden. In verse 10, we read, This pleased the Lord. God will bless and honor Solomon if he keeps God's commandments. If one of the first commandments in Scripture was, Don't eat, we see Solomon here suppressing his appetite and waiting on God to fill him. Solomon is like another Adam, but in right relationship with God and with God's people in God's place. He is seeking wisdom in the right place, and God honors his pursuit. The same question Solomon faced is the same one we face. Where do you look for wisdom? A handful of times in the first part of chapter 3, the word ask is used. And a handful of time, the word give is used. We can ask for biblical wisdom and God will give it. But how many times do we refuse to make that request? And instead of the wisdom found in God's word, like Adam and Eve, we prefer to look elsewhere. So the question is, where do we look? Some of us look inwardly. Look, I know this job is going to take me away from church, and it will make it really difficult to go to small group during the week, and I know I won't be able to meet up with this person for discipleship anymore, but you wouldn't believe the salary. And so contrary to the advice of your peers and of your spouse, you take it. Others look outwardly to the culture See, you've been singing hymns since you were a child, but the culture's songs are sounding more attractive. Society's anthem of love is love and her body, her choice, incessantly pound against your ears and you begin singing back. After all, if everyone is singing, there must be something to this. And before you know it, you've adopted moral relativism. You stop calling out sin for what it is. And the great casualty is that you now become a proponent of this new worldview. And you begin to say things like, did God really say? You question his every word and soon you become unrecognizable as a Christian. Maybe it's closer to home. You're one of those people who doesn't enjoy conflict Someone close to you has offended you, but you never tell them. And the bitterness begins to fester and build to where eventually you begin to dislike, even despise this person. Your heart tells you this is the best course of action because that individual obviously had a sinister motive involved with their offense. Meanwhile, that individual is wondering why you two never talk anymore. See, we like to listen to ourselves. We want to pursue the desires of our own heart. Sure, our hearts have failed us again and again, but that doesn't matter. It'll be right one of these days. Is this really the way you want to live? Do you really want to do what is right in your own eyes? 
Maybe we need to ask ourselves, in what ways are we currently pursuing wisdom on our own terms instead of God's? When we rely on ourselves and blatantly ignore the wisdom of God's word, what we are doing is committing the same folly Adam and Eve committed. We're grasping for wisdom on our own terms. And there are consequences for this type of pursuit. If you didn't heed the warning of Adonijah in 1 Kings chapters 1 through 2, listen to it now. You can be sure that you will be responsible for your own downfall. This is part of the grand storyline of the Bible. Will we let God decide what is right and good, or will we decide and become our own rulers? Solomon asks, in Hebrew it reads, for a hearing heart. Is your heart attuned to God's word? Are you willing to hear? Are you willing to say, I am not wise and I need God's wisdom? Solomon immediately has his private request for wisdom put on public display. We come to scene number two, the king's public display of wisdom. Let's read verses 16 through 28. Then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. It happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child. And we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. She arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, for the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, No, for the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son who is living, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, for your son is the dead one, my son is the living one. The king said, Get me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. The king said, divide the living child in two, give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, oh my Lord, the king, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. Then the king said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king. For they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So we're brought to some sort of ancient Near Eastern red light district. 
In this district, there are two women who share a house. These two women give birth just days apart. One morning, one of the women wakes up to find a deceased infant on her chest, but there's a problem. This was not her baby. And then we are presented with a bit of a riddle. We don't exactly know who the child's real mother is. This woman and I live in the same house. She arose at midnight. I laid him at her breast. The dead child is yours. The living one is mine. This woman, the other woman, and back and forth it goes. And we're caught right in the middle. If you notice, one element that is absent from the text are names. We're simply told these are two prostitutes. They're referred to as this woman, the other woman. The name Solomon isn't even mentioned. He's referred to as king. The author wants to heighten our senses and make us aware of their status. They were prostitutes, the lowest on the social and economic totem pole. If you're Solomon, how do you know who to believe? It's a game of she said, she said. The first thing he does is listen. You see it there in verse 23. The king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, for your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. And then the next statement out of Solomon's mouth probably sent a hush across the room so quiet you could hear a feather drop to the ground. Get me a sword. The narrator adds to the suspense. So a sword was brought to the king. At this point, you would think the woman who lied would be gripped so much by the fear of being found out, she would have pleaded with Solomon to forgive her. But we don't see that yet. Solomon is going to use the wisdom God has given him to find her out. We read in verse 25, the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. And the responses of these two women are quite striking. The first woman, whose son is alive, tells the king to give the child to the other woman. Well, she can't get her child back. She would rather have him live in the other woman's care. At least he will be alive. The second woman's response is as cold and as ruthless as you could imagine. He shall neither be mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman. By no means put him to death, for she is his mother. Verse 28 gives us insight into the reason why Solomon was able to execute this just decision. All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do, to do justice. Here we have the king of Israel, who in wisdom descends to meet these two lowly women, two nobodies who are living in sexual sin to enact justice and bring peace to the situation. 
Even the most deceived of the two has her life spared by the mercy of the king. They were not worthy of this kind of generous display of wisdom. And we are not worthy either. We deserve justice. We deserve condemnation for our crimes against the king of the universe. But instead of destroying us in the eternal wisdom of God, this king descended into the very realm he created and he dined with the lowly, with the very people who did not want him to come. And he loved those who would abandon him in his final hours before death. He drew near to prostitutes. He healed the disease. He befriended societal outcasts. And he offered sinners like you and me eternal life. The eternal God descended to become man so that he could dwell with man so that he might save man from death. And when the time was right, true justice was handed out, but not on the ones who deserved it, you and I, but on the one who did not deserve it, the one who was without sin. Scripture says there was no forgiveness, no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. The guilty party must pay. Jesus, the eternal God in the flesh, became sin for us. The one who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Because of his death and resurrection from the dead, anyone can come to King Jesus. Look back at verse 16. Two prostitutes come and stand before the king. The access they had to the king is the kind of access we have to our king. As the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 4, 16, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace. We have direct access to our God. And you might be thinking, you don't understand. You see, I'm much worse than these two women. If you even knew the things I did this week alone, you know as well as I do, the king would never want to see me. Well, then you don't understand what type of king we serve. He is the same one who visited the Samaritan woman at the well, who exposed her adultery and yet offered her living water himself. And she received eternal life. Not even your most egregious sexual sins are outside of God's saving grace. Puritan John Dodd said it well. It is a great fault to think that you have more in abundance of sin then God has of mercy to forgive it. It is a great fault to think that you have more in abundance of sin than God has mercy to forgive it. And if you think you're not as bad as these two women, you need to think again. All sin separates us from God. All sin is deserving of just punishment. If you are not a believer... What justice will look like for you in the end is the wrath of God. 
You may think that everything is fine with your life now. You have a nice nine-to-five job. You're living the middle-class dream. You're filling your house with furniture and different kinds of games. But in the end, justice will be served. Just like Solomon did with the prostitute, exposing the sin in her heart, Jesus will expose the darkest secrets of your heart. What was hidden will come to light. Every one of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Some people think they are so good, they can scorn God's offer of mercy, writes Thomas Watson. Indeed, these are often in the worst condition. These are they who think they need no repentance. A moral man is but old Adam dressed in fine clothes. Morality is insufficient for salvation. I am not saying repent that you are moral, but that you are no more than moral. Satan entered into the house that had been just been swept clean and garnished. This is the emblem of the moral man who was swept by civility and garnished with gifts but is not washed by true repentance. The unclean spirit enters into such a one. If morality were sufficient to salvation, Christ need not have died. We now come to our final scene. Turn to chapter 4. My last point, the king's coming kingdom. Like the beginning of chapter 3, chapter 4 reads, Now King Solomon and gives us his actions. The result of Solomon's wisdom and devotion to God's law brings national success. Not only is Solomon's wisdom on display, but his grace. You see uh, a bunch of names scattered throughout the first few, verse, few verses here. I want to focus on one name in particular, Abiathar. Remember, in chapters 1 through 2, Abiathar was removed from position as priest due to his participation in Adonijah's unlawful attempted takeover of the throne. But here, in verse 4, we see that one of Solomon's chief officials is none other than Abiathar, the priest. He's been restored. But in the midst of this wonderful, undeserved grace given by Solomon, along with the success of the kingdom, like chapter 3, we have more warning signs subtly alerting us that not all will be right. We're driving down that picturesque neighborhood road again. Everything is going smoothly until that pothole appears out of nowhere and jostles us back in the car. We're supposed to see this coming. In verse 6, we read, Solomon appointed Adoniram to oversee forced labor. It's such a minor detail, it's easy to overlook. But if we remember what came before kings, Samuel had a warned about this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. He said the king would take the best servants, male and female, and use them for his work. This was a serious warning. 
one that Solomon did not listen to. Nevertheless, just as Solomon's first two blunders in chapter 3 were cushioned by Yahweh's appearing, so here Solomon's third blunder is cushioned by the state of Israel. The nation is prospering, blooming so much that there is an official over each district. The narrator then brings us back to the Garden of Eden once again. Solomon acting as a new Adam, ruling in a new kind of Eden. Verse 20, Judah and Israel are said to be as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore, which hyperlinks us back to the commandment given to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1, 28. God is accomplishing his creation purposes. Solomon's wisdom is expressed in various ways. You'll notice this word wisdom is repeated multiple times between verses 29 and 34. Verse 24, he has dominion. For he had dominion over all the regions west of the Euphrates. From Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, calling us back to Genesis 1 through 2, where Adam was said to take dominion Of God's creation. The Hebrew word here for dominion is the same one used in Genesis 1. Solomon in verse 33 speaks of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds, of reptiles and of fish, the knowledge Adam had when naming the animals. In verse 34, we read that all the nations are coming to God's city to hear the wisdom of God's chosen king. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. God is gathering all nations into his holy city, which was his plan from the beginning. And what we will cover next time in chapters 5 and 6 Solomon finally makes plans to build God's temple on earth. Just as in the garden, God and man will walk together again. God's people living under God's rule in God's place. See, this isn't a chapter with a bunch of hard-to-pronounce names, big numbers, arbitrary cities. On the contrary... This is a picture of God's kingdom. We are meant to be looking forward. A new Adam in the promised land, getting wisdom from God in his way and ruling God's people in the way God intends. Beyond the officials, beyond the organization and the structure, beyond the overall good earthly government, God's promises are being fulfilled. The blessing of Abraham was coming through this new Adam, Solomon, to all nations. God's covenant promises are being fulfilled because God keeps his promises. If God were limited in any way, there could be no guarantee his promises would come true. If his knowledge of the future was limited, 
if his power was limited, if his ability to protect his chosen people was limited, his promises will be nothing but best guesses. But this is not a limited God. He is eternal, sovereign, and good. Isaiah 46.10, God says, He knows the end from the beginning. Ultimately, Solomon's kingdom is only pointing us to a far better kingdom. This kingdom is going to be greater than you could ever imagine. And we see glimpses of it here in our chapter. The abundance of food possessed by Judah and Israel, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand as on the seashore. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing, pointing to the new Jerusalem. Revelation 22, where we encounter the tree of life, which bears 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month, an endless supply of food, that all nations are coming to Solomon's kingdom, points to John's vision of God's heavenly kingdom in Revelation 5, where this kingdom will be filled with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It is a far better kingdom because we will be worshiping a far better God, a far better king. Solomon's reign was confined to a specific geographical location. Christ reigns over the entire universe. Solomon's wisdom was finite and limited and Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God's promises cannot be thwarted. If his kingdom is an unstoppable force, and if Jesus really is king, ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand, and if he is saving people from every nation, then what is stopping us from going out into the darkness head on to be witnesses of this reality? Do you have any reason to be hesitant in your evangelism? If Christ owns every square inch of Anacortes and Mount Vernon in the state of Washington and the universe, then no place is off limits to the church. We must declare the glory of God to a world that does not want it. I love what Philip Riken says. Rather than surrendering our community to the powers of hell, rather than surrendering our community to the powers of hell, we claim it as one place where Christ is king, where God is at work in our preaching of the gospel and where the Holy Spirit empowers us to serve people in need. But it doesn't stop here. Remember, all nations of the earth will be blessed, which means we must go into all nations. We are not passive sideline observers, but those who run into spiritual war zones with the sword of truth. As C.T. Studd so forcefully said long ago, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within the yard of hell. The true king has come, and he is coming again. 
And this king has given us an opportunity to choose divine wisdom. It is laid out for us in his word, the scripture. Whose wisdom will you walk in today? Who do you want to be the final judge determining between good and evil? When God is removed, the only source available, the only authority left is yourself. Quite possibly this morning, your own pursuit of wisdom has left you in ruins. You wanted to be the sole determiner of right and wrong, and things are a disaster. You've grasped for wisdom on your own terms. But not all is lost. You can turn back to God. Just like the two prostitutes who enter the king's presence, we have even more freedom to enter King Jesus' presence, and he will not turn you away. Go to him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to choose divine wisdom, to walk in a way that is pleasing to you, not pleasing to us. And if any of us have gone so far, cause us to turn back in repentance and in faith. Rescue us and guide us. We give you praise and honor and glory. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.